This is the balanced dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma, managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? On this episode, we're discussing The Balanced Dilemma and women in the military. Although the Brookings Institution refers to the U.S. military as one of the most progressive institutions, women still represent only about 17% of overall service members and far less in the top brass. That's in single digits. Our guest is Colonel Retired Mary Westmoreland, telling her story, why and when she joined the military, how she rose through the ranks while raising a family, what she learned about leadership and success, whether the military is a good career for women, and so much more. Let me tell you about our guest. Mary is a decorated combat veteran and a native New Yorker. She served in two military arms, the U.S. Coast Guard and the U.S. Army, and retired in rank of colonel after over 31 active military service years on October 8, 2008. Mary's military career encompasses command positions and operational and higher staff levels with the military police corps and higher headquarters levels. She has held various senior leadership appointed positions as executive officer and director positions at the HQ Department of the Army. Mary has also served at the Pentagon as executive director of global services and executive officer to the chief of Army Reserve immediately after 9-11, as well as deputy director of reserve component policy and mobilization for headquarters Department of the Army. Boy, that's a mouthful. Mary is a graduate of the U.S. Army War College, and she has received many awards, two Legion of Merit, a Bronze Star, five Meritorious Service Medals, and in 2020, she was placed in the New York State Senate Veterans Hall of Fame. Currently, she serves on the Women Veterans Advisory Committee appointed by Governor Hochul and has been the chairman of the National Advisory Committee on Women's Veterans to the Secretary of Veteran Affairs in Washington, D.C. And that's She's only a smattering of the accomplishments. Um, I know. We'll put it all in our show notes. So we are really excited to have you here, Mary. Thank you for joining us and welcome to The Balanced Dilemma. Thank you. This is a treat. We've been waiting for this conversation. We're so happy that you are joining us here today. So let's begin. You began your working life post-college as a college administrator. Did you have a career plan back in the beginning? No, I did not. Um, I graduated in the 60s, and the my plan was to have a career. As to what, the one thing I knew I did not want was to teach. So from that point of view, I knew it would be administration and it could have been a corporation or or university system, but I, no teaching, no skill. <laughs> Did you grow up in a military family and was the military something you'd ever considered when you were younger? Oh, that's interesting. No, I did not. I was a typical family member of the oldest of five a very typical family in Brooklyn, very proud of that uh, heritage. Uh, my par my father was in the military, of course, with World War II and all my uncles. 
And uh, my mother was a, a marvelous two-year college graduate who was determined to make sure that her children, four daughters and a son, finished school and had careers for themselves. But yep. uh, that's it. I was the oldest of five. And what about family aspirations? Did you always want to have a family of your own and to be a mother? Yes, I did, but not right away. Though I did not live that out, I did it right away, have a family. But I actually did not see myself as doing that. I was going to search longer. But in the in the world I was in, that was my my actual choice. I actually chose to go the traditional route. And you've described yourself as a rule follower. When you became pregnant and you were working, you followed the rules and gave notice. Isn't that correct? I did. And they were fine with that. The university at the time uh, actually said, are you sure you want that? Because we welcome you back. Now, that's 60. That's 69. And uh, that that alone was a gift I turned down. But and, and also it was a matter of distance for me with a new one. So I had to weigh those things. You had a big awakening in the late 60s. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I did decide that if I were having an early family, I would have two right away and raise my children. And it was really the influence of neighbors, other women in my community who said the same thing. It's so much easier to have them all at once and get it done, put the toys away. So uh, within two years, my second daughter was born. Uh, my first daughter, my second child. And that uh, propelled me into a sense of, of uh, depression because I realized, oh my God, this is a lot of work. And I used to think of myself as uh, Mary Elizabeth, uh, alive and well, but dead in the suburbs, because that's really the expression I had for it. What do you mean by that? I wasn't, I was so tired and so busy that the things I loved, like reading, uh, thinking, just thinking about what I read, um, I couldn't do. I loved theater. I loved movement. I was limited in my activities to, to the kids. I heavily got into that and truly enjoyed every minute knowing it would pass. And you've said yourself that even though you were a rule follower, it didn't mean that you were boring. You were heavily involved in your community and the activities. Um, tell us about that. Well, I was I actually a neighbor uh, commented amongst all of our female neighbors that uh, with, with little children, we were all together, that um, uh, she had joined a consciousness raising group and she would welcome anyone who would like to because it actually had gave everyone an equal opportunity to talk about what they were feeling unchallenged. And that was very enticing to me. But in that, having joined it, encouraged by my spouse, my husband, um, he knew something was wrong. He wanted me to move on. And uh, that actually gave me the, uh, the thoughts of what I could do with my life over those two years. So how did you end up in the military? Well, uh, that was absolutely based on practicalities. I knew that I needed a part-time job. We were very tight on money. And I also knew that uh, the easiest jobs were the ones that I did not have a skill in or an interest, teaching, assistant teaching. Those were very big at the time. Now, 
what do I do? Administration at a, a, a local shop was not going to get the money that we needed. But out of the blue, because of the volunteer service starting in the 70s, there was an aggressive uh, recruitment of uh, females to shore up the, the actual shortages in the military of the huge loss of, of males that had uh, staffed everything in, in, the, uh, in the ranks. So I heard those advertisements and they were very appealing. You didn't have to go full time. I thought, oh my God, that's interesting. Um, you could do part time, you could earn retirement part time. Now that was unusual. That was a benefit no, no other part-time job had. And it also, you had other benefits, death benefits, uh, uh, a variety of other um, travel benefits, things of that nature. And it was a family affair. They, the military encouraged family to be engaged and support you. That appealed to me. Was this during the Vietnam War or after? It, it was post-Vietnam War. So it was seven, the, the actual aggressive recruiting started in the 72 and moved on i it spoke to me in the 75s <clears throat> and i was i was sworn in in 76 and which branch of the military did you start with and tell us about that experience well that's a great question because actually it was a hard choice well i knew the marines were out i was not in shape for that but I loved the sea services. I had an aunt, my father's sister, who had been in the Navy in World War II. And she was such a, a, a live character who lived a full life, an exciting life with children, family, and that in her history, that I loved the Navy for that reason. And uh, the Coast Guard was aggressively recruiting for females in local communities, which Actually, I lived in Southampton, so that was a big opportunity for me. The Coast Guard Shinnecock was recruiting to fill space. So the biggest challenge for me was to explain that to my spouse, to my husband, that I'd like to join the military. Tell us about that conversation. Yeah, I want to hear I want to hear about that. Well, it. it I have to say, my father-in-law was all excited about it. The first Pulowski, because that was my name, I was widowed later. And um, he was so proud of that for the United States military. But my husband and my mother-in-law and my mother were very distressed over this. And um, But my husband, a rational and very proud uh, of my talents person, uh, supported that, that once I started putting it in a practical application, it was part-time. He was in education. He was available on weekends. That's when I would be working. It would be part-time dollars, but it would be a full two days of a week, of a month, and some additional duties if I volunteered for it. So that was very appealing. That, that sounds like um, a great sales pitch that we might tell to ourselves but how did your husband take the concept of having to watch the kids for the full uh, weekend and handle all the events? Did he just roll into it? Were there any glitches? Well, there were a few bumps in the road. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. But I had a very, as mentioned to you, a very supportive father-in-law who would make a point of dropping by with an adventure for the kids. And my husband would 
would really fold right in and it became his own self. He, he had it in him. It was a matter of being led, you know, how, how do I address this? And it, it worked out very well. So with the military service, was there boot camp? Was I mean, tell us what it was like joining the military and were there other women or how many? Well, the class I was in was an early, not the first, but an early um, basic training of integration uh, of an integrated class. In other words, males and females were in the class. That was how they defined it at that point. And um, so the actual uh, basic for Coast Guard and why I picked it, I didn't answer that. I, I picked it for the end, but also um, I loved the, the, the actual mission they had where we were not uh, held in abeyance for and, and trained for something that might happen in a war. We were training for something that would happen that weekend, you know, that could happen on my time. And uh, right now, search and rescue, you know, drug interdiction, it was very exciting. So the basic training of learning the, the absolute basics of military requirements, not just sailor requirements, not just Coast Guard requirements, was a, a, a big awakening for me. Uh, just firing a weapon was uh, really a shocker. And uh, I remember my first uh, competition uh, where, of qualification, um, I was firing very well, but I was, tears were pouring out of my eyes. I was so emotional, um, but I was steady and I was hitting the bullseye. And uh, a chief came over to me and whispered in my ear, and I picture the firing line, there's quite a few all along the right and the left doing the same thing you are, all being supervised. But he whispered and he said, you're doing great. Just see through the water, keep looking past the water. I love it. <laughs> and he was right, you know, I, I was expert, I fired expert. And they were taking bets actually. <laughs> I would go. <laughs> was the Coast Guard ready for women at that time? Were there facilities for women like ladies' rooms? Were there more feminized uniforms that would fit women's bodies? Those you know, that's such a great question because people forget they weren't ready. <laughs> You know, and I, I was, I'm five two. Well, I'm 61 and a half inches. I am the half, but I, so obviously I take a small and I was, uh, uh, forgive me, uh, off and shocked at the fact that um, they ran out of women's clothes. I was le letter P on the line of alphabetical, you know, collection of your clothes, issue of your clothes. So I was given uh, this large male shirt, utility shirt, and medium male pants, and medium sized male shoe slip, you know, sneakers actually. And um that was that was a challenge. I wasn't the only woman. We all had outsized uh pants and slacks and shirts. And so we were instructed to cut the arms off that night and sew our patches based on the seams from the bottom up so we'd all have the same height of our our patches. Whether our shoulders were lower or not, they would all be the same length. But it, it, that those happened. Those well, things uh, happened. Good thing you had those skills. So 
And let me ask you, did anything delay your becoming an officer eventually? Was was that an easy path or tell us about that? That was a hard path. Uh, the It should have been and would be um, by, based on just procedures they had uh, easy, but the circumstance interfered. Uh, at that point in, in the history of America, we were downsizing, but we also were salvaging talented uh, previous service members into the, into the reserves and the National Guard rather than lose their talent. So anyone like me, a, a latecomer and unskilled in the developmental stages would have to go. So when it came to OCS or a comp competitive edge there, uh, first it was a freeze and we were to, in Coast Guard and we were told that that, that would be a two-year wait before they'd open that up. So in, uh, over the course of that year, uh, my commander, uh, commanding officer was aware that I wanted to move on. He told, told me, I'm making an offer to you that I tell my wife to do. And she is going for a PhD in nursing. And so I was very impressed. I thought he was, he was sincere. And he said, you know, you, you don't have an allegiance to the service. You have an allegiance to service to the nation. So your skills are needed by a bigger military than the Coast Guard right now. And they're waiting outside the door and you have a choice. You can leave the Coast Guard, wait and may never gamble, may never get promoted to officer because your age starts creeping in and all these things, younger people are sharper, you know, and competitive, more competitive. He said, or uh, you can move on, gamble that the next service will give you that opportunity, given the size of them. Of course, the service was the army and uh, I was, two other males were in the same circumstances I was and they both said no 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 I'm I'm a loyal supporter of the Coast Guard I've been here forever and um I looked at that and thought well I haven't and um you know maybe I should shop around you know this is a big corporation so I, I he said uh, well if you're interested I don't need to know go out on your way home they'll be at the gate the army recruiter will be at the gate. Really? And that's how you got into the army. So let me ask you this. This is a question we've asked many women in different uh, fields. Did you feel that women needed to work harder in this system? How how was the gender? I, I mean, no, we, I know we've discussed they were inviting women because they had to, but what was it really like to be a woman in this infrastructure where you were the minority? Did you feel you had to prove yourself more? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my job was to be homework. I do my homework, everything, every little detail. And um, and I took every single thing seriously to the point where I was once advised by a good friend, but a senior officer then to me, uh, Mary, you're, you're far too serious. Can't you smile once in a while? But I had ah, a- the, the lady smile advice. Exactly. <laughs> And I, I, uh, I knew that he was right. And I also had realized that actually it came to me that I had arrived when I began to smile. And it was because I really knew my stuff and I was confident. And that took a little bit of time. 
So how did you gain that confidence or and the leadership skills? Did somebody mentor you? And obviously your commander somewhat sponsored you, but how did you learn those things? Well, the, the leadership skills are transferable, of course, a multitude of, uh, of uh, corporations. The idiosyncrasies of the military are uh, traditional and impressed, you know, the appearance piece. But, uh, and the courage piece, you're challenged more than you might be in an ordinary officer. But I, uh, but in college, I was selected um, as a sophomore, as a freshman to um, attend their leadership training programs, which were uh, funded by the university and IBM. And it was a leadership training program they developed for their executives internationally. So I did intend, I went to those four years, well, three years in a row and the fourth year I taught there. But the uh, experience was invaluable for my whole life to include family management, you know, and uh, uh, and community involvement. And we're gonna come right back to that. We're gonna take a break. You're listening to The Balanced Dilemma. We're speaking with Colonel Retired Mary Westmoreland. Mary, we've discussed how your husband uh, so adroitly pivoted to being caretaker every time you had to go and serve on weekends and breaks. What about your children? What were their ages and how did they take this uh, mom in the military? Well, that, when they were young at that point, they were four and a half and uh, six and a half. But they, uh, and, and because their dad and their grandfather was so proud, um, they were proud. Uh, as a matter of fact, they helped me memorize the, the 10 and 20 skills you had to pass for annually. They would all gather in the living room, everybody, my husband, the kids. Um, and we would go over the test the skills and then they would test me. Every, they, they tested themselves, you know, first aid, all the things that you have to take a part of, uh, you know. It was just a very um, family piece to the whole thing. Very important for me that they had a part in this uh, because I, I didn't want them to feel excluded from anything I did. On the other hand, my husband, um, he got a whole lot more sympathy in the world from the world about having to take care of children than I ever did. <laughs> You know, this brings us to a question, and you and I went over some vocabulary that you were previously unaware of, and one that I want to introduce for this segment is what we call the lead parent. And um, Anne-Marie Slaughter came up with this concept, and it's uh, in a family relationship, it's presumed that one parent has to be the lead parent, the one to make to the doctor's appointments, the one to get the calls from the school. Did this experience change uh, your family dynamics so that your husband was the lead parent or was he in the auxiliary parenting group? <laughs> was he in the reserves? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. He actually uh, phased in. We shared that job and we broke it up into practical applications. You know, you've got a half hour. Would you handle this? You know, uh, or you're home today with the kids. It's a rainy day. Can you cover this? Um, then, of course, I would be home. And I would cover all the things that I could cover. And it really was um, a family affair, uh, back and forth, to the day he died, actually. You know, they talk about military families, that it is a commitment for the whole family. And actually, Brookings Institution described the military as set up contemplating basically a young man with a stay-at-home spouse. 
did you see that being the case? And wasn't, you know, we recently learned the term of a trailing spouse where usually the woman comes along and her labor is considered free, but they contemplate a two-person two commitment. Well, certainly in the beginning, I was that. So yes, I did see it. But it evolved uh, with my help. I had to hold back sometimes uh, uh, anger uh, for the sake of reason and explain or talk or work a person into it because I realized I was developing. I was very mindful of that. And, the, and I, was, I needed to help my husband feel comfortable with that if we wanted to have a relationship. And I did. So we, we worked on that. We had lots of conversations on that. Um, I was just very fortunate because he was mature enough uh, in his own uh, right to uh, appreciate someone else who was developing outside the home as, as much as me. Did you, do you think this helped your marriage, um, This your pivot? It sounds like there was a lot of communication, a lot of evolution between the both of you. So how did this actually affect your, your marital relationship? It absolutely kept us together. Had it, now, that I know that's not true of most many, many people. I understand that. And I understand why it isn't for others. But for me, I would have had, I know, having felt so deeply at the beginning with two children, um, and the uh, emptiness, uh, the the uh, lack of value that I saw in myself, uh, that um, which was unfounded. Of course, I'm doing one of the nation's most important things, caring for the next generation. But the fact was, I I felt unproductive, no matter how many you know things I did in the community, and uh, because we we in this nation value people by the dollar. And uh, I wasn't bringing anything in and we were hurting, we needed money. So therefore, what am I doing to contribute beyond just the house? So yes, I would have probably found that this didn't work for me personally. And then it would have been a very hard road to go down. Pivoting back a little, going back to the army, because I, you did join the army. Tell us how that happened and how you ultimately got the promotion. You know, the actual, uh, that day, I spoke to the recruiter leaving the Coast Guard that night, and um, he said he made appointment, but I did go back to the Coast Guard one more month, and uh, people were very sad that I was leaving. A few people said you were, uh, I was being unloyal, um, disloyal to the, to the uh, service, and, um, but most people understood, you know, they didn't, uh, that if we were such a new animal. If we we came, we as females came and went. They didn't miss us unless we didn't do a particular task, you know, on time. And uh, I wasn't uh, missed, I'm sure. But I did um, make the right decision, and the right course was was uh, really clear when I ran into my peers uh, at uh, two years later. No, three, uh, I should say three years later, I was now had been advanced into officer rank and I was a captain. And um, they were still, uh, the pay rank would be East Fives. So, uh, and I was in 03. So I had jumped all that 
rank in all that time. They were uh, uh, petty officers. Was there backlash for you as a woman wanting to advance? Yes. Um, uh, in the well, first of all, I kept a very low key my entire career that I was interested in advancing because I realized that when you're an alien to the group, uh, being uh, ambitious is an unappealing and uh, an unattractive part of the of the team. For women so, or everyone? Everyone, male and female. You don't want to see that ambition unless you're nurturing the person, mentoring them. But to be in a team, you're afraid they're going to betray you for their own, you know, highlights, highlighting. But I, I actually, uh, uh, I just kept it to myself. I felt, you know, if I get ahead, it'll, it'll not, if I don't get ahead, it'll not be because I didn't prepare myself. So I volunteered most of the time for hard assignments. And I learned everything I could about that job and the jobs around me. And I made myself available for the hard uh, tasks, uh, whether you know I had to do it or not. If they needed it, I would be willing to do that. You know, um, and I did all the courses. Of course, you the it's a profession, so you have quite a few programs. One of our guests, uh, we talked about taking a victory lap, and those that is important to getting the uh, you know the credit you're due for your achievements. But in this uh, system. How did it come about that you got your advancement? How did you take a victory lap, so to speak, without looking too eager and uh, keeping it on the low key the way that you said? How did that come about? I applied for everything. I had an opportunity to apply for. I didn't wait for someone to tell me, why don't you do that? If it looked like I might be able to do it in the timing, and when I was ready, in other words, I had participated in the education portions of it and had managed to know what I was doing. Um, yeah, I, I went ahead and applied. And um, at one point, I applied uh, for a command, a battalion command, something you have to have to move forward. I was a, a, a major, a lieutenant colonel, brand new. And I applied for Army War College, a very coveted seat that everybody wants and less people go there than the other. In that year, both boards in different cities uh, selected me number one for those two positions. And that was a shocker. Uh, my boss called me and said, you know, Mary, we've got a dilemma here. You have to pick one or the other. The, all the senior officers want you to pick one or the other. And I, he said, which is it? And I said, I don't know. I both wanted both. I had no idea that was, this would there, happen. There must have been something special about you that you, you didn't know and others saw in you. But you've also suffered setbacks. So you had a major setback when you were ready for deployment. Can you tell us about what happened? You mean my, my uh, spouse? Yes. That, that uh, little little thing that you had to deal with. <laughs> that was big, um, yes. of course. And uh, that was incredibly difficult. Well, what happened? Tell, tell our listeners what, what happened to you and your family. Uh, every, everyone, every woman who's lost a spouse knows. And uh, but it's it's no different than uh, anyone, males or females. But in this case, I was in the army 
I was assigned to the military police as an AG officer. I, my husband was at work teaching and I received a call. He, he had collapsed and it was, a, turns out it was a massive heart attack. There's lots to go on, but fast forward after a week, they determined he, he had died and that was that. And they, but the biggest issue was now, oh my God, I had just put in a request for release from active duty because we figured at this point I would go on to graduate school and finish a PhD or something, but you know something to really capitalize on my own growth and and the family's next life. So I put that paperwork in, and um, I didn't think I could make it without my husband and his support had been so wonderful. The uh, kids were devastated. But, and they weren't kids, they were t older teenagers. My son had just turned 20, so he was adult. And I, uh, the, the, the issue of getting back to work just, just seemed, and I was not even a thought. Uh, but my bosses showed up, drove out to uh, 100 miles to reach me in the middle of the night while I was still at the hospital, the, the last night. And uh, they were in uniform and, uh, in the dark, the nurse tells me they're waiting for me outside, and they hand me my paperwork, which had been sent into the big defense system to be uh, cut and ordered. If they explained to me, you made this decision, we hunted down your paperwork, we demanded that it come back on a courier so that you have the choice again because you have a family now. What, what did you do? Tell us what happened. Well, I signed it right then and there to come back. And they uh, they said, well, okay, you know, you'll be covered then uh, for insurance for the children, all these things. Why well, you look for another job if that's what you want. You know, in, in the military they, system. In the, but uh, that or leave active duty. But at that point, they gave, they went out of their way as a family, a military family does. And they drove that distance to make sure that I was protected. So I remember a story you told me in this window of time with this tragedy looming. And what happened, uh, what did your son say when you were making the decision to whether to deploy with your men? Uh, that was a really a heartfelt story. Well, I was, I was at a dinner party of senior officers and their families and uh, all the officers were at the table together, big feast. The kids were at the other end, and my son, being the older one, was in the, amongst the adults. And our daughter was at the end; she was eighteen, just barely eighteen. And I, uh, they were all talking about the war coming up. Now we're talking nineteen ninety, so with the Persian Gulf, not quite called that yet. And uh, the word was out. This was all the services, Air Force, and it, the the Air Force gentlemen said. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not going and I'm lucky. And are you going? No, no, everyone was go not going. And uh, then they, the dead silence came. They asked me and he said, so Mary, you're not going to go, are you? Of all people. And my son jumped in and said, mom, my mom wouldn't let my, her men go without her. So Mary, what was your grandest moment in the uh, military? I think um, 
at retirement seeing my children healthy, happy there. And, and they came, one came from, I was retiring out of the Pentagon and they came from great distances. One came from Germany and the other one came from, from uh, Washington state just to be there. And, uh, and my new husband whom, who lived out other wars after that, but it, it was a really uh, wonderful thing to see so many mentors show up for my retirement. And your children are both in the service. Uh, they, they've served as well. They did. They're veterans and they did serve. And uh, my daughter is still working for government. And my son is uh, in Manhattan banking. So, Mary, do you recommend the military as a career choice for women and for mothers? It's not for everyone. And so I don't recommend it for everyone. But if a, if a woman uh, in particular has the interest, she should give it a try if she has, but she needs to know what she's going in for. There, it's, it's a very different animal than any other job. Uh, it, some people compare it to other serv emergency services, and it is, except you never come home. You can, you can be deployed for a year and not come home, you know. We were, we've discussed other uh, working um, styles right now, working from home. That's not an option when you're in the military. I mean, there might be something where you can be close to home, but you have to go to work. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there are innovations, there's hands down, but yeah, you're accountable and you have to go to work and you're, okay. you're responsible. Are there any changes that you would like to see in the military to help women serve? I don't know, more easily or you know, to make it easier for them and their families? Well, so much has changed. And the movement towards caring for children has just expanded. It was it existed when I was there, but now it's much more embedded in, in programs and posts. Uh, and it's it's threatened right now, as you know, all the child care is. And so it goes right into the mix of that worry. And that's a 24-hour trial care. You know, you, you have lots of hours to worry about, but, uh, and, and other health services. So we started our show with one of our patent questions that I'm going to pose to you. Can you have it all and all at the same time? What does that mean to you? And is it possible? Oh, my goodness. Uh, have it all? Maybe at the end of your career, you might say, I've had it all. But concurrently, I don't know. Certainly, you juggle. And that balance that you talk about, each corner of that uh, triangle of family, work, you know, and yourself, uh, it, it, that, that triangle turns and bends, depending on the situation from my point of view. And you work with that. You massage it. And it's a job. It's a job. It is a job. So, Mara, I'd like to take a moment to tell our guests they can find us at thebalancedilemma.com, or you can listen to old episodes and sign up for new, our newsletter, find show announcements, show notes, resources, and further reading. You can also follow us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook and LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are also available for listening on Apple iTunes, Google, and Spotify. I'm Christy Derrico. I'm Maura Carlin. Thank you so much, Colonel Retired Mary Westmoreland. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.